This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to the Power of Murmuration podcast, where we explore modern management and leadership practices, leadership as a state of mind, and co-create a leadership-focused future. I'm Jennifer Roma, and I will be sharing this space with local, national, and international leadership and management experts. It gives me very great pleasure to welcome Dr. Chris Turner into our podcast today. He is a consultant in emergency medicine in an NHS tertiary trauma center in the West Midlands and co-founder of Civility Saves Lives, which was established to raise awareness of the power of civility in healthcare. And that's where I first came across Chris Turner in his TED talk, When Rudeness in Teams Turns Deadly. And I just love that link between civility, kindness, which is considered to be a bit soft and fluffy, with actually how deadly it can be. So a very warm welcome to Chris. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your, your early career? What prompted you to go into medicine and this interest in civility generally? Absolutely. It's lovely to be here and lovely to chat with you. So really brief background. I was born in Edinburgh, grew up in Edinburgh, feel like an Edinburgh person to my very core. And, you know, there's a total sort of kind of non sequitur, but I'm adopted. And when I was in my mid-40s, I discovered that I was actually from the west coast of Scotland. And this was a devastating moment in my life. I kid you not, my identification with Edinburgh is so strong that I was holding on to something in the kitchen and clutching my chest in a highly dramatic moment. But I grew up in Edinburgh. I went to Edinburgh Uni. I went to a comprehensive school in Edinburgh. And I went to university to be a psychiatrist. That was what I wanted to do. I was very clear about that when I went to university and in common with many people who go to university, I didn't end up doing what I was very clear that I wanted to do and went through the system, struggled a bit at uni and the academic part of uni was difficult for me. I couldn't really sort the wheat from the chaff. Once I got to the clinical stuff, I, I was fine. I flew in the clinical stuff and I left, left uni, went and worked for a few years around Scotland and England. Then I went off and lived in Australia for three years, which was amazing, completely fantastic. I went from, I'd been in Glasgow where with the wind chill factor, it was minus 20. And I turned up three days later in Townsville in Queensland in the middle of summer. And it was just crazy, crazy hot. And I worked there for three years, lived there, worked there and had an amazing time worked with absolutely fantastic people, many of whom are still friends now. Played lots of music, which is a thing that I've done most of my adult life. Came back to Britain and did some training in psychiatry. Changed my mind. Changed my mind one day when I was driving along between Falkirk and Edinburgh. Thought, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to go back and do more emergency medicine, which I'd done in Australia. And I did. I went back to working in emergency medicine and ended up on a training scheme in the West Midlands, which was incredibly informative. I met some amazing people, really inspirational folk. There's a consultant in Stoke called Ruth Kinston, 
and Ruth was, you know, just wanted to be like Ruth when I grew up, basically. And Magnus Harrison and the pair of them were utterly inspirational, taught me to do critical appraisal. And then I got to the end of my training and I always wanted to go and work with them, but there were no jobs in Stoke. There was, however, a couple of jobs in Stafford, in Mid-Staffs. And that's what I did. I went to go and work in Mid-Staffs and I went to work in Mid-Staffs and became embroiled in the whole Mid-Staffs scandal. I was in training when the, when the report went on, then in between the report finishing and its publication, I got a job in Midstaffs as a consultant in the emergency department, got made the clinical lead in my first job, which is never a good thing to do. But of course, you're completely flattered into accepting it. Such were my magnificent leadership qualities, eh? <laughs> Don't think so. And I ended up being the face of the emergency department when the Midstaffs report, the first one got published. And it was a truly defining time in Going to Australia was defining my life, but so was working in mid-staffs. And the mid-staffs thing was incredible in a really, really scary way. You know, you get sucked up into the eye of the storm and you go from being somebody, and this was true for all of us in the organisation, really. We went from being people who came to work to do the best we could to being judged externally as really bad people who were trying to harm patients, which was... Of course, not what we were doing, but that's what it felt like. And it was a, a truly difficult time. I was going into meetings. People were calling me a murderer. And members of staff that I worked with were being told by patients who were scared, being told by patients that they were terrible people for working in this trust, despite the fact the patient had come to seek our help. And it was really, it was a tremendously damaging environment to work in. And Towards the end of my time there, I got sick without realizing it. I, I stopped sleeping and I stopped eating and I didn't really notice. People around me did, but everybody was under so much pressure that nobody really wanted to point out that somebody might be getting unwell in their midst because we simply couldn't afford to be a man down and I end up losing two and a half stones in nine weeks and had to buy my skinny clothes. They, they're still in the cupboard. No, they haven't fitted me for about a decade. But, you know, I have my skinny clothes sitting around in there. And eventually I left the job and I went to work in another trust for a year, which was really interesting experience. And then I went to work at University Hospitals Coventry in Warwickshire, which, which has been brilliant. I've been there for about 11 years and I really feel as though I found my tribe I work with. The people in the emergency department that I work with are genuinely inspirational, amazing individuals at all levels. But the ones that I've worked with for the longest are within the senior nursing group and the consultant body. And I work with people who inspire me on a daily basis, who hold me to account and who are relentlessly supportive. So it's been fantastic. And when I, when I was at Midstaff, so I'd always done governance. Governance is the, the thing that interests me behind the scenes in healthcare. So how are we going to make things better? What's gone wrong? Actually, also what's gone right. But how do we make the things that have gone right happen more often? And is there something we can do about the stuff that's gone wrong? And I got into this situation where I began to realize that the things that we were doing to prevent things going wrong were really not preventing them going wrong. We'd, 
we we slipped and and this isn't just us in UHCW this is this is everywhere people just slipped into these kind of blame cultures where something went wrong we wanted to point a finger at people and it made us all feel better that you know there was a bad object and we'd blamed the bad object and we could all walk away now because they'd had a bit of punishment and yet the same things were happening over and over and over again and around about this time I was speaking to a friend of mine called Trevor Dale. Trevor Dale's a human factors guy. He's one of the pilots who moved into human factors stuff. Um, and Trevor has a company called E-Trainability. And Trev and I had met each other a few years previously. And we were having breakfast. I met him on my way to work to have breakfast with him one day. And he was telling me about the work of Christine Parth and Amir Erez, who had been looking at the impact of seeing uncivil things, of being of being treated uncivilly or being in an uncivil organization. And they were looking at that and they were saying, do you know what, it seems to have a demonstrable, measurable impact on people's performance. And that was like a light bulb moment for me because I started to realize that the way that we were treating each other was was actually having an impact on performance. Up until then, I suppose I probably thought that you know, I was just a wee bit too soft that I felt that my performance went off when people treated me poorly. And I think that's the same for a lot of folk. And then realizing that you could measure this and that it was actually nearly ubiquitous with people that when you treat them poorly, their performance drops off. That opened the door to the whole idea of, you know, civility saves lives and talking about the importance of treating each other well. And we we spent a long time thinking about how to frame that because we could have gone for for the don't be a sort of style and, you know, and don't be a, and then you can add any secondary sexual characteristic or anything negative you like on the end of that sentence. But don't be a would have been, a, it's catchy. People would have gone, yeah, that's right. And they would have got on board with it. The thing is, none of us think that's us. We don't think, that we're being that that sort of person. We don't think that we're being an arsehole or whatever. We tend to, tend to think it's other people. And there's a lot to be said for a pro-social message, something that's aspirational. And that was why we ended up going for Civility Saves Lives. And that was, that was very informed by Adrian Plunkett's work in the Learning from Excellence movement, that, you know, if you, if you say you want to learn from the good stuff, or that the good stuff can make things get better. People tend to get on board with that as a concept. It's not a finger-pointing exercise. It's a personal aspirational exercise when we frame things that way. And that led to starting Civility Saves Lives, which I genuinely thought would be a couple of talks. And, you know, then it would disappear and I'd go back to talking about, I don't know, sensitivity, specificity, and diagnostic testing and, you know, stuff like that, which I'm also interested in but as soon as joe farmer and i started talking about this stuff there just seemed to be a huge appetite partly because there was some evidence that we could show people about this that it really did make a difference and joe and i did a few talks and then there's more and more and more enthusiasm for it and you know eventually ended up doing a, a ted talk did a couple of ted talks and you know that's that's an interesting form of, of sort of advertising for your cause. And then more and more people got on board with it. And, you know, Civility Saves Lives exists all around the world now in a completely unmanaged way. 
you know, the the way we run it is if you want to use the expression civility saves lives, if you want to use any of the stuff that we've created, if you want to use the logo, go for it. You don't need to ask for permission. Crack on. And it, it's become this this thing that consumes huge chunks of my life in a very positive way. And yeah, that's kind of how I I got to being here today with you, Jennifer. Well, and it is that TED talk, Chris, that when rudeness in teams turns deadly, medicine, so much of it, of necessity, is evidence-based. And it was the evidence that I think Christine Poroff, I think I pronounced that correctly, was talking about that even as a bystander of incivility, you are something like 50% less likely to help someone if they need help. And I think that it was the evidence backing that you had that really struck a chord with me that not only is this logical, morally the right thing to do, because who wouldn't want to work in a happy workspace, but, but actually does save lives because you've measured something. Could you tell us a little about the everyday behaviours? You're in the, the middle of the eye of the storm, as it were, in AME. What are the behaviours that you see that, that often they're subtle, often we, we notice them they commonly occur, they can be quite small, but what kind of things are you seeing when okay. you're seeing this thing called incivility in the workplace? So the thing about incivility is that there are a few different definitions of it, but for most people, when they're talking about incivility, they're not talking about the extreme end of somebody screaming and shouting in your face. They're not talking about open hostility. We tend to be talking about behaviours which are potentially ambiguous in their intent or so low level as to be as to make us feel well it's not really worth mentioning it so you know when so when you talk and somebody rolls their eyes or if you talk to somebody and they tut or people who finish your sentence off for you stuff like that is it's kind of low level you're not quite sure if it's meant to be offensive and Yet it slightly destabilizes us. The mechanism through which it slightly destabilizes us it, it is not completely clear. So one postulated version of this, and this is what I like, is that when somebody treats us in a way that feels like it might be a wee bit disrespectful, it feels like the thin end of the wedge of threat. It feels like somebody might be saying it's okay to treat you this way. It's all right to do this. Now I might see how much more I can push this and how much more I can push it. And what that does is internally that begins to trigger a diversion of our cognitive resources from that nice, relaxed logic state where we can think about stuff into the beginnings of fight or flight. And that steals from our working memory. That makes us perform intellectually at a lower level but also it changes our mood. And, and the bit you were mentioning about the, the work about 50% of people who witness incivility, if you stand up and walk around the corner and somebody asks you for help after you've witnessed incivility, you're 50% less likely to help that person. Mm -hmm. Now that to me talks about an emotional contagion that you know we've gone into a worse place where we're not the good versions of ourselves where we're not able to respond in a compassionate, a kind way 
towards other people. And when I started to sort of learn this stuff, it really had a big impact because to go back to your point, so what are the behaviors which are uncivil? Well, that's in the eye of the beholder. It's not in the intent of the perpetrator. It's in the eye of the beholder. And that makes this whole space kind of messy because I might say something to somebody with pure and positive intent, but they may interpret it in a negative way. And unless somebody tells me, unless we find some way to tell me about that, I am likely to keep doing that. Whatever that thing was, I'm likely to keep doing that. And that means that that person, at least every time I do it to them, will be thinking I'm deliberately being disrespectful to them. That They may see this as a microaggression. And that's not necessarily the case. So the stuff I'm talking about, the stuff that I find really interesting is the slightly ambiguous set of behaviours. Some of them, you know, some of them we can just learn to not do. Tutting and rolling your eyes and finishing other people's sentences off for them. You know, it's pretty good policy to not tut at people when they're talking to you, to not roll your eyes when someone is talking to you. I have a colleague in another hospital in Birmingham that literally every time I speak, she rolls her eyes. It drives me insane. It drives me completely insane. And I, I, I kind of sit on my hands. She does it in Teams meetings. She does it if I'm there. And, you know, it's really annoying. And I've kind of, I've slightly got past it, but I am also aware that it triggers me and, I, and that I get to sit there and I just want to sort of rage about it. But, you know, people do that. People, people display these behaviors towards each other. And, you know, I have to take the moral high ground and assume that she doesn't know the impact that has on the people around her. That's actually really difficult to do, by the way. The forgiving space that she's probably got a medical difficulty with her eyes that causes her eyes to move like that when you speak. Yeah, only when I speak. You know, I don't know, Jennifer. I have my doubts about that. But you could, of course, be right. So that leads me on to my next question. I've just delivered a training session on feedback and seeing how awkward people feel when they have to give feedback, even though the perpetrators would probably rather know that this is how they're coming across than not know. But that's after the event. How do you give feedback in a kind and genuine way without risking becoming a target for possible future incivility? Okay. So the first thing is you always risk becoming a target for future incivility. That comes with the territory that any of us having this, having a conversation with somebody else where we're going to give them some information that it's not that they'd rather not hear it. It's that it's going to make them uncomfortable when they hear it. We run a risk when we do that. And we, you know, we call them difficult conversations. We call them crucial conversations. I rather prefer the expression an essential conversation because these conversations are essential because if we if we don't stop this stuff becoming normalized in the workplace then we we are part of the process that creates a toxic workplace if we let it if we just let it go and let it go and let it go when we become people who allow others to do this to behave in those ways then we're not taking control of the workplace culture. We're not playing our part in making it positive. 
I'm, I'm going to skirt around this and get to the middle of it in a second too, because there is another point I want to make that an awful lot of the people who make a living out of talking about this stuff, and a lot of people who, when you hear the sort of Vox Pops commenting upon people speaking up, they do it from the perspective of who they are now. So these really senior people say, hey, well, everyone should just talk up. They should speak up because, hey, I can speak up, so everyone should speak up. And the truth is they couldn't have done that 30 years previously. They weren't in a position to do that. They, they don't recognize that they've had 30 years of growth and seniority. That's put them into a place where they, they now feel that you know, they can do it. So why can't everybody else? Well, everybody else can't because they're not in the place that the person who feels they can do is in. They're more junior. They're younger. They probably don't have the same skill set. So then it gets into how are we going to have these conversations? And I very much lean into the work of Jerry Hicks and Vanderbilt around this because I think that in healthcare, in healthcare in particular, we are extremely hierarchical. And asking somebody who is, say, a band three or four HCA to come and talk to a band seven nurse or a consultant to come and talk to them and to give them some feedback about how they've come across is, for most people, impossible. And even when we give them training on how to do it, it's still impossible because actually there's a relationship that's going on there. And I'm going to use you and me, Jennifer, as an example. So Jennifer and Chris have a conversation and afterwards we walk away. And in, in this particular scenario, you're the boss, I'm the junior. And walk away from it. And you walk away and you think, well, that went pretty well. And I walk away and I am devastated because I can't believe that you spoke to me like that. And I, and I feel hideous and, oh my God, you know, and, you know, how dare that happen? This is, this is awful. And what people tend to do is at that point, the person in my position will firstly go and speak to other people about it. And we, we sometimes think that's gossiping, but I don't think it is. I think it's sense-making. I think we're collectively sense-making. So yeah, hey, Chris, you know, when Jennifer spoke to you like that, do you know what? Jennifer is absolutely lovely and there's no way that she would have ever, ever meant that. And that allows me to reframe it and make sense of so what was going on there and understand my interaction in a different way. If, however, I say to people, oh, Jennifer, she was so horrible to me. And they go, oh, she's always like that. What a cow. And then what actually happens there is a couple of things. Firstly, it reinforces my belief that this was deliberately a negative act on your part. And the second thing is we collectively reinforce your reputation. And we do that every time. We're always collectively reinforcing reputation. It's much easier to do in the negative than the positive. And then I will eventually get to the stage where, you know, this is winding me up so much that I might go to HR and I'll go to HR, my line manager, and say, I really hate the way that Jennifer spoke to me. And then with somebody will sit me down and go, well, do you know what, Chris, we're going to give you some training. We'll give you some training on how to give some feedback to Jennifer. And I'll get some training in difficult conversations, crucial conversations. There might be a bit of speaking truth to power. And this stuff, so all that stuff is brilliant. The problem with it is that once I've had the training, it feels like the responsibility is back on my shoulders to come and tell you how that interaction went for me. And the difficulty here, and this is from work by Kruger and Epley, 
the difficulty here is that we tend to believe that we understood purpose and intent on the part of the person who's talking to us at about a level of 90%. I believe that when you were speaking to me, I got 90% of your intention. That means that I know why you did it and I didn't get this wrong. And now I'm now I'm being told I have to go and tell you that, you know, it hurt me the way you spoke to me. Well, well, what's going on there is that I believe you tried to hurt me. So when I go and say to somebody, hey, it really hurt the way you spoke to me, I, that almost feels like going to somebody and saying, you know how you tried to hurt me? Well, it worked. Mm-hmm. And that's empowering your aggressor. And people don't want to do that. Now, now the truth of this, and this is, again, the kruger Neckley work, but when somebody speaks to us, we believe we understand 90% of it. The truth is it's about 78%. And when that becomes the, exactly the same words, but written down in an email, we still believe we understand 90% of it. But actually, that's 56%. So, you know, yeah, yeah, miles less. And, and there's all sorts of reasons why. And we can get into that. But the point is, the point is that I believe that that was intended to hurt. And what Jerry Hickson said was, that asynchronous relationship, that hierarchy, that's destroying our ability to have these conversations. So how about if instead of Chris having to go and tell Jennifer how Jennifer made him feel, we have a second messenger and we'll call our second messenger Anne. And Anne is a colleague of yours, Jennifer, and Anne is going to come and have the conversation with you. Firstly, she has a conversation with me to understand what happened from my perspective. And then she comes to have a conversation with you. And the conversation has two overarching themes. The first is that when she speaks to you, she is going to hold the conversation with compassion. Even though you're meant to have done something terrible, she is going to be compassionate with you. She's going to care about you in the conversation. And the second is that she's going to land the information. She's going to land the information that I was left feeling distressed at the end of our conversation. But she's going to do it without judgment. And that completely changes the nature of the interaction. It's extremely difficult for me to talk to you in that situation and for me to, in the conversation, be compassionate to you. Because I think you tried to hurt me. And it's hard to be compassionate to people who tried to hurt us. Some people can do it and my hat is off to them. But most of us can't. Most of us are so scared that this person will try to hurt us again that we aren't in a position to be able to do that. And we teach people how to hold these conversations as a second messenger. And it's really simple. As a second messenger, it's a three-part conversation. And it goes, check in, shot across the bows, land the information. And it, it doesn't take long to do it. And the check-in goes, how are you? No, really, how are you? Because we know that people who are distressed often distress others. And one of the last times I had one of these conversations with somebody, I, I, I said to him, how are you? said, no, really, how are you? He spoke for eight minutes. He was not okay. It was anything but okay. The bit that followed on from that is the shot across the bows. And, you know, that goes along the lines of, so Jennifer, after you and Chris spoke yesterday, how did that go? You know, or just Jennifer, how did it go in the conversation with Chris yesterday? It's pretty clear there's something, something happened in that conversation. You should, most people pick up on that cue. Now, sometimes they'll say, hey, I made this joke and I realised afterwards it could have sounded misogynist, but I don't think he heard it. And you can say, yes, he heard it. And 
oftentimes what happens at that point is people move into what's called service restoration mode and they go, Jennifer, thank you. Really appreciate your time. I need to go and find, I need to go and find Chris and go and have a chat with him because nobody wants to be that guy. But often they'll say, no, it was normal. And it probably was. That's the truth. It probably was a normal kind of interaction for them. And the third bit is landing the information. And we construct this really carefully. And it goes like this. Jennifer, just to let you know that after you and Chris spoke yesterday, he was really upset. And I know that you'd want to know. And that's it. There's no, you did a bad thing. There's no, you are a bad person. There's no judgment in that. There's a statement about another human being feeling a certain way after an interaction. And just leaving that information with somebody allows them to choose their path, what they're going to do with it. And many years ago, I went to see Jerry Hickson and sat with him in Nashville and talked about what their evidence base was. And at that time, they'd had 37,000 of these cup of coffee conversations. After a single cup of coffee conversation, only 2,000 people had gone on to repeat those behaviours. Those 2,000 people got a second cup of coffee conversation, like the conversation I've just described to you, but this time with a 360 from the people who they work with, to say what it was like to work with them. And after that, they were down to 267 people. And that was the first level at which an authority intervention happened, either their boss or HR. Because up until that point, all the interventions were peer-to-peer. And that just blew me away because how many times have you heard about people having these interactions in healthcare where it just escalates and escalates and escalates and you have two sides there that just let it blow up? And I think it's in part because we as human beings are really tempted by judgment. We're tempted to look at other people and decide that they're bad, that they've done a bad thing. When actually most people are trying to do the right thing, some of us are pretty bloody clunky in how we do the right thing sometimes. And actually we just don't recognize that we've gone about it the wrong way. And without somebody coming and let us, letting us know, then how can we change course? If I don't know that the words that I use cause people distress and offense, you know, how am I meant to, to know to go in a different direction next time? So for me, the feeding back requires a safe environment. It requires compassion. And it requires us to think about the systems that, that we have in place to let that happen, particularly when we're dealing with very senior people. Because very senior people have so much entitlement in their roles and entitlement in terms of how they're allowed to behave that they sometimes act out when they're told this stuff. I mean, Jerry Hickson can put data onto that. It's 4% of the time. 4% of the time, people will push back hard on this. But, you know, if you're prepared for that, that's okay. Just let people push back. And by the way, people who, when they have the conversation, push back hard, that's not a predictor of their future behavior. When they push back hard, those same people will often go away, think about it, process it, and choose to change. Yeah, so say it's probably that initial initial discomfort that actually, you know, someone has upset Chris and had absolutely no idea that you've gone away with that hurt. Yeah, so I made a note, check in, shot across the bows, and what was the last step? Land the information. That's the hard one. 
<laughs> and yeah, and it's not just landing the information, it's landing the information without judgment. Yeah. So Jennifer, when you spoke to Chris afterwards, he was really, when you, when you spoke with Chris, he was really upset afterwards. I know you'd want to know. I mean, just leave it there. That's it. No, that's not the end of the conversation because what happens is people always want to talk after that. But that's the end of the, the sort of intermediary part of the conversation. They've landed that information. How the other person processes it is their own business. And I, I, I'm really attracted to that as a way of holding these conversations because I think it takes a lot of the emotional sting out of it. And, and the evidence heard, base is strong. Once heard, you can't unhear that feedback, yeah. can you? It's going yes. to... To be something that you can reflect on in the quiet of some solitary times that you may have. That yeah, yeah. Eventually, you will surface. Yeah, there was probably something that I did. I was feeling fairly impatient that day. Or so we've talked about civility and your passion for civility, and it's really powerful in our conversation, Chris. This question is a bit counterintuitive, but I have been reading about you, as you do with Google and the wonderful things that are around. This no asshole rule. Okay. small. All right. So, so, well, there's a book by Bob Sutton, of which I think is something like the no asshole rule, which is a really interesting, it's a really interesting concept. But the, the most powerful place I think of this is in terms of the All Blacks New Zealand rugby team who have basically a, a no-asshole rule around the team. And that is to say that if you're, if you're on this team, you don't get to behave like that. You don't get to behave in a negative, disrespectful fashion. You have to be part of the team. And if you do behave in that way, you will simply stop being selected because teams perform as a function of all the individuals together. And when people treat each other in a way which is disrespectful, what happens is it diminishes the performance of other people. But when I think about this, when I think about this in terms of leadership and management and, and us in healthcare, the way that I tend to think about it is through making the best quality decisions that we can make. And this is true, whether we are talking about at a board level, where McKinsey do work on this, or whether we're talking about a resuscitation, that teams perform better depending upon the quality and quantity of information that they have. And in those settings, I tend to think of it like this, like, it's called the, the pool of information and it's by Professor Joanne Gurry and, and actually, and me. Joe is a professor of linguistics at Warwick Uni. And this complicated or complex situation where you can't see it all yourself, you can't do it yourself, is represented by an empty swimming pool. And as we walk up to this, we walk up to this complicated or complex problem, some water appears in the bottom of the pool. That's what we know. That's what we have brought to the party. Now, we can make our decision based on that water that's at the bottom of the pool. It might be a, a foot or a couple of feet. Or we can choose to get more information and then we can make our decision. And we can choose people to stand around this pool of information who look like us, sound like us, think like us. And we can get them to stand around. I could get a bunch of squat, beardy, middle-aged Scottish men to stand around the pool of information and they will contribute. They will contribute happily and they will give us more and more information. 
The thing is, what they will give us, though, is the same information over and over and over again because they have the same background and probably the same interests. They probably like beer and heavy metal and rugby. And you get that same information over and over again. So you get more information, but the quality is not great. Or we can choose people who represent different ways of looking at problems, people who have different perspectives. And, you know, we can choose people who have different race, religion, sex, sexuality, different value system. And we can get these people to stand around the pool of information. And they might contribute. We certainly now have the potential for much richer information. However, at this point, this is the illusion, and this is clearly an equality, diversity, inclusivity argument, but at this point, this is the illusion of inclusivity because every single person standing around the pool of information has their own tap and they will choose to turn on the flow of their information. They will choose to turn off the flow of their information. And the single most important factor determining whether or not people are going to turn on the flow of information is do I feel valued and respected around here? And when people feel valued and respected, and that is underpinned by civility, when they feel valued and respected, they turn on the flow of information. When they don't feel valued and respected, they simply turn it off and they don't share information. And this really plays out in a visceral way in terms of our ability to provide good, high-quality care on the front line. And this is what the risk and an errors work was on. What they showed was that if you have teams who are matched for ability doing neonatal resuscitation, so doctors and nurses working together, then teams match for their ability, that they vary in terms of performance. This is in the TED Talk. But they vary in terms of performance from those brilliant outcomes to terrible outcomes. But that 40 to 60% of the variance in that normal distribution graph, 40 to 60% of the variance is down to one thing. And it's actually information sharing. It's underpinned by civility. But it's information sharing. When we have cultures that encourage people to share information, what happens is the people who are making the decisions get better information from which to make those decisions. It doesn't make the decisions easier. And that that would be it'd be untrue to to allude to that. It actually makes the decisions a wee bit harder, but the quality of outcome in those those decisions is significantly better. And that plays out to better outcomes for patients and resuscitations. And it plays out to better profits for boards who have, you know, increased psychological safety at a board level and increased equality and diversity. So for me, that's where this stuff comes into its own. And it does speak to, I, I talk a lot about harnessing discretionary effort, uh, mm. creating the environment where someone feels that they can bring their whole self, their ideas and their enthusiasm, exactly as you say, sharing information, which we choose to bring or not to the party, as it were. And actually that person has to feel that there is a professionally warm relationship with the person in charge, their line manager, the people who are the higher ups, so that they feel comfortable enough to bring their whole self to work. And I think that's where a lot of our hierarchy in the NHS struggles. We have a lot of people who come in, do a pretty good job, and then leave. But we know we have to work slicker. We have to harness everybody's ideas. I think Michael West did a huge a huge service to the world where he talked about this business called staff engagement, bang on about it regularly. But so tell us, Chris, 
sounds exciting. What top three things would you recommend for someone like me in a position where I want to start beginning to change culture in my organization? How can I make it a more civil organization? Is it about big impact stuff or is it small nudges in the right direction? What could we do? Okay. So the very first thing is to decide what culture we want. And I think we need to be clear about that because at the moment, if we're talking about leadership cultures, in many organizations, going for a leadership conversation is Russian roulette. You go and speak to somebody who is higher up in the organization and basically they put the bullet into the gun, they spin the chamber and then they take a shot. And you might get the full Michael West compassionate leadership. Somebody might attend to you. They might be present with you. Or you might get somebody who tells you to F off, sling your hoop, because it's not your business. That's not your lane. Get out your lane and go back to work. Now, it's important to understand that what sort of culture we're trying to create, because I don't think we are clear about it a lot of the time. I think that people like yourself and myself are clear. I think we want a compassionate leadership culture, but that doesn't ring true for everybody. And there is a need in my mind for us to be explicit, say this is how we do it. Now, having a compassionate leadership culture doesn't mean that you can't be command and control sometimes, because sometimes we need to be command and control. It's just that its value is really very limited. Even if we look at cardiac arrests or trauma team management, situations where people kind of imagine it's all command and control, the best teams are not command and control throughout the whole process. They tend to start off as command and control till people know what their roles are. And then once the process of the cardiac arrest or the trauma gets into a state of flow, they tend to become collegiate. People are exchanging information, they're sharing information, they're getting on board with each other, and they're sharing goals. And they have this shared mental model of what's going on, and they've co-contributed to that, which is quite a sort of technobabble way of saying that we talk to each other. We talk to each other and as a leader, it's my job to encourage people to tell me things, to make sure that I know them if they think that I need to know that. So the, the starting place for this is what do we want? Because, you know, if we're talking about culture change, well, we probably need to be going in the same direction because actually the, the second bit is that we create culture in every single interaction. All day, every day, every single interaction that any of us have with anybody else is defining of our culture. We nudge it a tiny, tiny bit in one direction or another direction, or we may hold it in the same place. But understanding that's all of us. That's not just the chief exec. That's not just the matron, the consultants. It's, it's not just you know the head of estates. It's all of us, every single time we have an interaction. And unfortunately, people will overvalue the negative interactions. When they hear a few negative interactions, that becomes the accepted culture. And there's a real risk there for us, you know, that we get into that toxic workplace culture where shouting and bawling at people becomes normalized. This was a real issue in mid-staffs. In mid-staffs at a middle management level, the way the middle managers spoke to particularly the band five and band six nurses was hideous. These were not hideous people. They were doing it because it had become normalized as the culture. It was normal for our nurses to walk out of the morning meeting in tears to start their shift because they'd been told that they were going to lose their job 
if we had any breaches that day or whatever. And it, it was a really toxic culture. So decide what culture we want. Understand that we impact that in every single interaction. And the final bit for me would be to recognize that culture change is something you can push too hard on. Culture is how we behave towards each other. And that's a choice. People choose to behave in a certain way. Now, if we want people to behave in a different way, there has to be reason for them. And there are those extrinsic reasons, you know, you're going to get the sack if you don't behave like this. But mostly behavior is driven through intrinsic motivation. It's driven through who am I and how does this behavior resonate with what I value? And what that means is that when we're trying to persuade people to choose to change, we have to do something. We have to resonate with their values, not with our own values, with the things that are important for them. And I, I think about this as a line. If you can imagine a line, a horizontal line that's about effort of persuasion. And effort of persuasion, how hard are we going to try to get something to change? And the first barrier we have to get past is ignorance. Because if we don't know about something, we're not going to take it into account. If you don't know about global warming, you're not going to think about your carbon footprint. If you don't know that behavior matters in a demonstrable, measurable way in healthcare, you're probably not going to think about your behavior too much. If you don't know that Philadelphia cream cheese exists, you're not going to think about putting it onto your cracker. So we have to get past ignorance. And that's the first bit. We get past that, that ignorance. Now, the problem for us is that there's a bear trap beyond that. The bear trap beyond this is this belief we have that if pushing a little bit worked quite well, pushing a whole lot harder is going to make it much more successful. And that's true when we do exams, because almost every exam you've ever done has been passable. We didn't pass it because we didn't do enough work or we had a bad day or whatever. But actually in real life, pushing harder and harder and harder is not a good thing to do because there's a second phenomenon and it's called psychological reactance. And psychological reactance is what happens when somebody pushes us too hard. So Jennifer, if I was to come to you and I was to meet you, I would say we meet in the street and you don't really know me. Jennifer, it is really good to see you. Jennifer, I've been reading this book. This book I've been reading is the best book I've read in my life. It is absolutely fantastic. I read this book and it's changed everything. My whole world has changed, Jennifer. You know what, Jennifer, this is the best book I've ever read and I see the world differently. And do you know what happened when I was reading this book? When I was reading this book, I thought of somebody. I thought of you. I thought, do you know who really needs this book? Jennifer. Jennifer, th this book's going to change Jennifer's whole life. She's going to read it. She's going to love it. And she's going to see the whole world differently. And you know what? I liked it so much, Jennifer. I liked it so much that I bought you a copy. There you are. And I hand you a copy of the book. And we know that about the last thing you're ever going to do now is read the bloody book. Absolutely. And you know... You yeah. really overwhelmed. Chris. Yes. And you're not going to read the book because what I just did was induce psychological reactance. And effectively, psychological reactance is the moment when we take away somebody else's agency, when we tell them what they have to do, why they have to do it, and how they're going to feel about it. And the more senior we are, the more likely that we are going to raise one or two fingers in salute to this concept. Because we have a need to feel that we are self-determining, that we are deciding on the direction that we're going. And it has to be something that resonates with our values, not because somebody's told us to do it, but because we see it as being 
a positive thing to do intrinsically for itself. And what that means is that when we want to move the standard things that people do, the behaviors they have in work, then we have to make it resonant with their values, not with my values, it's with their values. And to understand what values resonate for somebody else, we have to talk to them. We have to give them time. We have to let them understand. We have to let them tell us what matters to them. It's not what matters to me, what matters to them. And then perhaps we can construct discussion, and it's not persuasion, it's discussion around those things. And when I'm giving talks, I, I always often think of myself as being like a wee man inside an old-fashioned signal box on a train line, pulling different levers. So I pull some levers, which are stories, because some people really like, most people like stories. Some of my levers that I pull are emotional. Some of the levers that I pull are data. I'm pulling these different levers because I'm talking to big groups of people. And I'm trying to find something that resonates with people that are out there. And remembering that just because something's important to me doesn't make it important to somebody else. For you and me, Jennifer, we might think it's nice to be nice. But we just like an environment where people are nicer to each other. And that's true for many people. If, however, the most important thing to you is money. If you're on the board and finance is more important than anything else, and you know that's understandable because these guys are measured on that, then... My discussion with somebody can't be about, hey, it's nice to be nice and you should just put more effort into that. I have to show them the evidence. And, and there's lovely evidence on this. That if, you, if you work in a more civil organization, this is from work by the crew guys at Veterans Affairs in 2011 in America. If your organization is at the top end of the civility scale, you have increased staff engagement. And as you've already mentioned, we know that's the number one predictor across all KPIs. We have Increase staff retention. That saves you a ton of money. Retaining staff is a very effective way of not spending so much money. We have increased staff satisfaction, which is a good thing because it means people talk positively about our organizations. We get a better reputation. And we have a couple of things that decrease. One of those is equal opportunities legislation. If you're at the top end of the civility scale, less people go to court around equal opportunities legislation. And that in 2011 was saving those organizations $2.2 million over the ones at the bottom of the scale for civility. But that's completely dwarfed by the savings that you make on sickness absence. And organizations at the top end of the civility scale were saving $26.2 million over organizations at the bottom because people simply come to work more often when they work for more civil organizations. And there's a whole bunch of mechanisms through which that might happen. But my point being that, you know, we have to decide the culture that we want. We have to accept as well, though, that it's going to take a while to change it. And that if you push too hard, you cause problems. So actually what we need to be doing is giving people information that matters to them and letting them choose their own path. Because people will choose the, the virtuous path if they can see why it's valuable to them. But it's their choice. And straight away in those last final words, Chris, I, I got to hearing in my heart those words trust, that actually we have to trust people to choose the right path. We have to trust people with the information, with the ideas, with the thoughts, with the ambition that we have as an organization to grow our culture and improve our culture. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. If, if there's a pile of work, a ton of work to be done, we're not just two lone souls digging away, 
Can you tell us a little bit more about what, what's happening in your world? What what are your plans for the future? What next TED Talks? You talked about oh. a book. Yeah. Oh, honestly, I I am the least constructed person in the world around what the future holds. I, I kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen in the night garden, but there's a bit in the night garden when there's a, a wee man bobbing about on the water in his raft. That's me. I see what opportunities come along and take them. If I can manage to fit it in, I sort of plug along, plug away. I've got invitations to go and speak. I'm giving a keynote talk in Amsterdam in a couple of months. Probably going to Canada, America and Australia to talk about this stuff towards the end of the year. That's, you know, providing it works with the rest of life. And, you know, mostly, mostly I'm just, I'm about getting the opportunity to chat to lovely people like yourself, get into conversations about this stuff. And I'm not really trying to change anybody. I'm just trying to say that there's stuff in this that that matters and it might matter to you. And people choose their own path. And so I, I'm more and more comfortable with that as a concept, you know, that I'm, I don't hold myself responsible for people for their behaviour, I also don't hold myself responsible if people don't choose to change, but I do think it's my responsibility as a professional within a professional workplace to support people to know the impact of behaviour. And for me, it's, I honestly don't know. I'll just, I'll see what happens. That There's more and more and more work seems to sort of appear in my direction. There's, there's a whole world of stuff out there for people who are interested in this. And I've done some work with Premiership Rugby in England. I've done some work with county councils and various other people. And it's it's quite nice. It's an opportunity just to spread about this positive stuff. Come involved with the Global Compassion Coalition, who are an organization that Michael West also belongs to. And these are people talking about the importance of compassion, not just in healthcare, but in politics and in the law and in teaching. And in how we conduct ourselves in our workplaces globally and outside that as well. But I'm not so naive as to believe that, you know, we're going to suddenly turn the world into a bunch of people who are all compassionate towards each other. The purpose of that stuff is to let people know that there are advantages to treating other people with respect that go beyond just the warm fuzzies, that go into better performance at an individual team and organizational level and potentially even better societies. But, you know, an interested, involved person around this stuff and curious to see where it goes. Also, always slightly anxious that it will get used in the negative and, you know, aware of that and, and keeping an eye out for it. And it's not like I believe that everybody in the world is lovely and wonderful, but I think most people are when you give them the chance. And I want to give people the chance. Oh, we're ending on a really hopeful message. Thank you so much, Chris. So much now for me to read out written down names. I do hope that we can invite you back for another podcast. I could have talked to you for hours on this subject, but thank you so much for your time, your energy today. It's been great. Truly lovely. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jennifer. Complete privilege. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Power of Murmuration. As ever, we hope that this sparks your curiosity, encourages you to think differently and inspires your courage to act. Please join us again next month and goodbye till then.
The team at the Gosh Learning Academy would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.